Think Civic, a podcast where we explore civic responsibility in tech, policy, design, and more. I'm Evan, and I'm delighted to be joined today by my co-host, Chizo. How are you doing today, Chizo? Doing all right. And so if you can't already tell, a lot has obviously happened in the world since we released our last episode. Yeah, and on a personal note, Chizo, Jay, and I have, have been, and, and still are, very busy uh, Jay has been traveling the world. I've been juggling different work responsibilities between a grueling six-month production cycle at my place of work, uh, my full-time place of work at least, and uh, coaching an improving basketball team part-time. And Chizo wrapped up work with the Aspen Tech Policy Hub. Uh, you want to discuss that a little bit, Chizo? Just finished the Aspen Tech Policy Hub's winter policy primer great experience with 40 other participants so excited to share more details about that in the show notes on top of what you mentioned i think our own with you know with our own hectic schedules we've had to learn about how to plan interviews a lot better you know to actually have really good episodes overall i mean i think it's we'd all agree that it's been great to explore other things breathe a little bit and figure out how we can continue to sustainably deliver the best content for you our listeners. You know, it's something that you discussed, right? We all work. We work full-time jobs. And like, this is an excellent opportunity for us to explore topics in this area. But, you know, at the same time, you know, this isn't what we do full-time. So we need to figure out ways to get this to fit into our schedule that doesn't result in us sleeping for three hours a night, although I'm already doing that. Someday, Um, someday. Someday. (laughs) (laughs) But speaking of content and scheduling interviews, I had a bit of difficulty with this one, but we are absolutely stoked to share this episode with you. We spoke with Billy Lim, a former senior organizer for Code for America's National Action Team, Billy did amazing work with them spearheading their ongoing efforts related to data design and ethics-driven work on a project called Reimagine 911. Our conversation with Billy covered how he started embracing pivots in his career, how teaching informed his approach to social justice, his work politically organizing AAPI communities, and his advice for people interested in pursuing a career that's meaningful and impactful for society. Yeah, even though it was a lot of work like getting this episode together, I am so happy that, yeah, we were really able to speak with him. I think really learning about how organizing is such a important part of building movements, of sustaining movements, of actually like getting policy or action done that benefits, you know, people. I think that's just something that I really could tell like exuded from Billy and like was like a driving force for why he continues to do this work. But we'll talk more about the Reimagine 911 project, which is where I remember meeting him at the kickoff and being like, wow, so much enthusiasm for what civic tech can look like outside of the context of just being a contractor. Like there's such thing as grassroots movements in this work. And so, yeah, really excited to see what our listeners take away from this episode. Really engaging interview at least that I've participated in actively instead of having like maybe one line or even nothing. But, um, you know, as an update going forward, we plan on releasing at least one episode per month, as long as our schedules allow. 
hopefully we will be involving all of us more often. You'll hear from us and we'll also be producing more content. We really have exciting guests lined up that we've been working on for the past few weeks and we will be exploring uh, deeper topics that we can't really like, oh, we can't wait to share with you all. Make sure, if you weren't already, to follow us on our new Twitter handle, at ThinkCivicPod, to join in on the conversation after this episode. Like we mentioned in our season premiere, we've launched a new Substack newsletter to make sure that you never miss an episode. Every episode will be delivered with links for all streaming platforms, key takeaways, references mentioned, and the full transcript for folks that prefer to read up on the conversation. So be sure to hit subscribe at thinkcivic.substack.com. Now, without further ado, here's our conversation with Billy. Welcome, Billy, to Think Civic. We are so happy to have you on. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. For some reason, just I think just by random chance, we have been attracting Wisconsinites to the show, even despite the fact that one of our hosts is from Wisconsin. <clears throat> Give you an open-ended question here. Billy. So staying along, you know, being from Wisconsin, can you give us a little background on yourself? What's your story? Do you have a superhero origin story out there that we're missing or enlighten us and our listeners? Not quite a superhero story. I don't think I'd describe it that way, but I'd be happy to tell you a little bit about myself. So my name is Billy Lim. I'm a senior organizer at Code for America for our national action team. I was born and raised in Wisconsin in the city of Milwaukee. Yeah, I spent all of my childhood in Milwaukee, grew up on the north side, went to school in a nearby suburb where I commuted in. And yeah, I grew up in a family of five. My parents are refugees from Cambodia. You know, the growing up was tough in some ways as a result of that, but great in other ways. So, you know, that's a little bit about me. Wisconsin was good to us, I think, and we love cheese. <laughs> so I'll just... Put a pin in that. <laughs> yeah, if you want some string cheese, I can get you some like state absolutely stuff from like a local cheese store. It has to be the state fair, absolutely. <laughs> I used to work at the state fair. Really? Yeah, we have these root beer barrels at the state fair. These giant root beer barrels that people sit in and they sell soda. And that was my summer job through high school. So I have fond memories of. I don't know if I call them fond. I have memories of the Wisconsin State Fair. Say that. That is awesome. I have to say, the first time I ever went to the Midwest was in Minneapolis in 2017. And that was the first thing they told us. They said the Wisconsin cheese heads is a thing. Cheese curds. I ate a lot of cheese curds. So good. So good. (laughs) They are really good. (laughs) Not to say that our whole conversation is going to be about cheese, though easily it could be. Really, could you walk us through, like how your identity kind of growing up guided your career choices. I know for me personally, at least my upbringing, living in my community in California, you know, a lot of people from Nigeria, that definitely shaped, I think, how I, you know, saw the world, I think, growing up, but really curious how that manifested for yourself. I think that my upbringing, my family had a huge impact on my career trajectory. Growing up, as is the case with a lot of Asian American and immigrant and refugee families, education is incredibly important, super highly valued, not just from a cultural standpoint, but at least from, you know, from my parents' standpoint as a pragmatic matter. We were not rich by anywhere remotely close to rich, and the effects of that every day are palpable. You know, we were 
a good, my family, you know, we subsisted on some food stamps. My dad was a pizza delivery driver. And that was not really the life that I think my parents, you know, wanted for their kids. So education was really important to me. I was really lucky in that I was able to go to public schools in this nearby suburb. The schools in Milwaukee, the Milwaukee public schools are, they're not necessarily the schools that you would prefer to send your kids, at least when I was growing up. I was really lucky to be able to commute into a nearby suburb where the schools were excellent. I had like a really fine awareness of how different my life could have turned out. Even like by the age of 18, if I had not gone to the schools that I had gone to, had the mentors that I did, the support system that I did, which whether we like it or not, that's so often what our school systems provide. All of that support that, especially when your family is struggling, they can't necessarily provide for you. So, you know, I went off to college and that's where I was really focused on education, advocacy, education policy. These were where my interests were. And after I graduated, you know, I became a teacher. And that wasn't what I was actually planning. I actually, right after graduating from college, you know, a lot of people were, had asked me, what do you want to do? Are you, are you going to teach? And I was like, no, I can't teach. <laughs> I can never teach. I know how hard that probably is. But I did get a job at a school and I very naturally ended up interacting with the kids and the kids reminded me so much of myself and their families reminded me of my family so much that you know, I was spending a lot of time with them and seeing the learning that was happening in the classroom every day. And I decided to become a teacher. I changed my mind. I taught for a few years, second grade, then fourth grade, then fifth and sixth, so elementary school to middle school. I taught history. That was one of the most rewarding experiences of my life and unsurprisingly probably one of the hardest jobs I will ever have. I did eventually find myself becoming unsatisfied with what I was able to do in my classroom. I think there's awareness, wider awareness of this today, but education cannot be the single panacea or, or problem solver for everything that my kids were going through. A lot of them were going through the foster care system, did not have consistent support at home, did not necessarily have food on the table, did not have electricity, you know, were surviving situations that were just tremendously difficult for anyone, much less children, to be going through. And I felt really limited in what I could do in my classroom. And so when I thought about my skill sets as a teacher, and just in general, in terms of, you know, being able to speak to audiences, to really craft messages and make more complex topics and messages more translatable to everyday people, you know, those are skill sets that you cultivate as a teacher and learning really what people need and putting that at the center of everything that you do. And so, I, you know, I took those skill sets and I thought, how can I expand my reach? How can I do something that would affect things for my kids or people like my kids? And I decided to go into political campaign work, thinking that the way to enact wider spread change at scale across many issues would be by electing leaders who could provide those exact changes or at least try to enact those changes. So I went into campaign work as an organizer. That's where my first career pivot sort of was. And you know, I put those skill sets to use. I was talking to people in my neighborhood. Every day I organized in the neighborhood in which I grew up. I was learning a lot about how campaigns work, how to inspire people, and how to build a sense of connection between people and issues that they may or may not feel close to. From there, I went on and, and did organizing at a national scale for an Asian American nonprofit voting and civic engagement nonprofit. Through my, um, you know, into my time there, there was a tragedy in my family that necessitated me moving back home to Milwaukee. I did that, continued organizing again I think for the 2020 election cycle. 
And, you know, at that point, I was lucky enough through some of my other work with Asian American civic engagement, leadership development, I found out about my current role that's at Code for America, which is really at the intersection of organizing, civic engagement, and the holistic application of technology. I wasn't someone who was expert at understanding the systems that did support my family and my parents growing up. But when I was learning about Code for America's work and what this role would entail, government service delivery is really important. And, you know, I mentioned food stamps earlier. I mentioned, you know, there are a ton of public services, public benefits that made it possible for my family to just like live and (laughs) survive. And I thought a lot about the intersection of Asian Americans and how there are barriers to access to public benefits, to accessing quality service delivery from government. And so I'm really happy that I'm able to work every day now as an organizer, trying to do my part in helping connect people to those issues and those causes. Yeah. Wow. Like that's such an incredible, I think, story of how you've kind of really made a thread like through each of the things that you found like interesting things that you were passionate about and actually kind of turn that into like the actual you know work that you do day to day i'd like to kind of pivot back a bit and actually kind of hearken back on your time as a teacher so at least from what you remember right what were some of the experiences or skills or things that really you you held on to like after you made that, I think that transition into organizing that you learned as a teacher I and mean, like working with people directly trying to, you know, better their lives, help them do better in school, which is a really important thing. Like how did that kind of translate into that next pivot? There are a lot of parallels, I think, between teaching and organizing. On a very basic level, it involves speaking to groups of people. It involves guiding them and connecting them to ideas that they might not have previously been engaged with. And it involves cultivating a sense of self and leadership in other people, you know? And I would say that even applies to my kids who are discovering every single day more of who they were and who they wanted to be in their lives. I think that's part and parcel of the organizing work that most community organizers are doing. You're often meeting new people and your job is essentially to bring the best out of people and to show people who may not necessarily arrive believing it, like what they can do and what their actual impact can be if they, especially if they try something different. They might have the principles and values. They probably do if they're open to say volunteering for an effort or participating in a political campaign. But I hear a lot, I've never done that before. You know, that's the phrase I hear a lot from volunteers. I've never done that before. But as an organizer, I think that it's your responsibility to inspire people to see what's possible. And I'd liken that to the same thing that I was doing as a teacher, inspiring my kids, if I could, um, around my best days, inspiring them to see what's possible in their own lives. You know, I think when we were (laughs) going through our question slate here, like when we imagine like the answers you'd give, like planning and being able to speak and inspire people on why like those skills as a teacher are transferable to organization, like that's what we were kind of figuring would be in part of your answer. But the thing I didn't, realize but also should have thought of as someone who's the son of a teacher and who taught history for 20 years like and still a school administrator it's like you can be inspired and notice issues within your classroom related to poverty food availability mental health issues and knowing that that is something that also inspired you to take action hopefully like 
its teachers will inspire them to do that too, whether or not they're going to be allowed to by their state legislatures, given the current political trends. We'll see if that actually happens, but it's good to see that you've been able to make that career jump from being a teacher to a political organizer, and that has gone smoothly, I think, from what I can tell. But speaking of organization, we did want to talk about some of your work. So we wanted to start with just going through your political organization efforts in the AAPI communities. You've discussed why organizing is important to you, but can you discuss like what have you learned about America as a whole, the communities you've organized in? I think you did some organization work in Wisconsin and yourself since engaging in this work, especially in the midst of ongoing hate incidents against AAPI folks across the country. Yeah, those are great questions. So I'll start at the beginning and I'll go through and, you know, I'll start by saying that organizing is important because there's so much potential in people power and grassroots energy, and especially when you can bring communities together. We live in a democracy. We live in a country where so much decision making and change cannot happen unless you mobilize collectively. That's just a fact. Unless you're like, really wealthy, then, you know, then you can make the argument we live in an oligarchy, (laughs) in which case you can make change provided you have inordinate amounts of power. It's probably unethical. But that said, and if you're not that, organizing is one of the best ways that I've seen in my life to directly participate in bringing communities together in harnessing the energy and passions of everyday people toward causes that I, I believe in. You know, I wouldn't organize for just anything. And the things that I have chosen to organize around are things that are personally important to me. Organizing is at the heart of every progressive movement that we've seen in this country, from the labor movement to the civil rights movement to the feminist movement. And there are many movements within those movements. But, you know, organizing all of those movements and their attendant changes depended on people coming together and deciding that we, like, we are able to do something. I know it might sound trite or cheesy, but it's... It's true. That's literally how things have always gotten done. And I think that as a country, what I fear sometimes a little bit is that we're losing faith in our ability to make change, even if we come together. And maybe perhaps because the idea of coming together is not something that even seems really feasible or viable or possible anymore. Because we are also, we're so fragmented politically, culturally, there, you know, we have these clashes and there's a sense that, that there's not a togetherness to even strive for or that we even have the same values about where our country should be headed. I think that we do. I think that we do. They might look different. And there's a lot of bridge building work to be done between communities because, you know, there's not mutual understanding, I think, in a lot of cases. But, you know, I think at the end of the day, there are really, at least what's proven to me in my community organizing every day, there are many beautiful things about what people bring to bear as individuals and when they come together on making change for their communities themselves, their families, you name it. You know, I, I chose to organize around AANHPI issues because I am an Asian American and, you know, I think it was part of my own development of political consciousness as an Asian American, you know, starting in high school, but especially throughout college and then afterwards, seeing, you know, what it was like to be an Asian American person in the real world. Issues of identity, you know, you can't separate that from your everyday lived experience. Like, that is your experience. That's your life. And I think it got to a point where I was like, how could I not organize around these issues? It's like, this is life. These are real. They're not just like separate issues from myself. You know, they're 
And to be specific, it's like, you know, when I was working for this nonprofit in D.C., the AANHPI, Civic Engagement Voting Nonprofit, I was doing work around the 2020 decennial census. So literally the idea of being counted, like just (laughs) just being counted in the country that you live in, in which, you know, the fear was that Asian Americans would not be counted. (laughs) We would literally not be counted properly. And if you're not, then there are many policy implications of that. Billions of dollars of funding that our communities miss out on. So there are real policy implications. But I say all of this because, you know, that work of engaging AANHPI communities, my communities, in the census, in the civic engagement process, bringing them in and, and trying to instill a sense of, like, these issues matter. The issues that you see in, in your life and that your family is confronted with every day has a direct connection to these external policy issues. And we have to do something. We, like, literally don't have a choice. Because, <laughs> you know, if we don't, you know, as we like to say at Code for America, you know, no one is coming. Like, no one is coming to save us. It's up to us. And so I'd say that that describes a lot of the impetus and motivation behind trying to do something within the AHPI community, especially because I think there are leadership vacuums there. Not because of a lack of leadership potential, but because there is a lack of opportunity for leadership structurally and even culturally for Asian Americans. And so I really felt like I had a role to play in enacting those things for myself and also trying to bring other Asian Americans into the fold in that way, showing who we could be as people. The point that even that you touched on at the end, like no one's coming to save us, reminded me of a conversation I had with a friend who also said something along the lines of just organizing being something that's really purposeful mm-hmm. and life-giving. So at the same time of like, yes, no one's coming to save us. We have no choice but to do this mm-hmm. work. So thank you for doing this work. Which leads us to a great transition for what we hope to talk to you about today, since we'd love to talk to you more about yourself, which is awesome. But you're working right now with the Code for America National Action Network, and we wanted to just provide our listeners with an opportunity to learn more about the Reimagine 911 project, which, to our understanding, is a national volunteer effort. Caveat for listeners, I am a volunteer. (laughs) So we'd love to have you talk about this project in your own words, the partners and the ultimate goals of what this national movement that your team is building is hoping to accomplish. For sure. So um, thanks for opening up the space to talk about this current work that's both really exciting and challenging and honestly experimental. The National Action Team at Code for America is, it's a new initiative. It's actually semi-new. A lot of this experimentation in terms of how we can mobilize distributed people power at scale, connecting grassroots energy to an issue of national scope and importance, that works out last year with Get Your Refund. I was lucky enough to be organizing on this tax benefits team at Code for America, connecting, you know, tax volunteers to direct client service work, our civic technologists volunteer network to help support the development of the Get Your Refund product. That was where we really tried testing for the first time. Well, you know, our hypothesis was, you know, if we take this grassroots energy and we direct it in the right way, provide the right scaffolding and resources, you can apply people power in a scale distributed way to meet the needs of these issues. And so the national action team this year is really, I think, a natural progression of the work that organizing work we started last year. 
you know, to sum it up, the 911 system is really fragmented and there are a lot of barriers to change in the system. Currently, it's a system that, you know, in many ways, it's more police first or law enforcement first over people first in the sense that, you know, when you call 911, in 99% of cases, you're going to get a police officer who shows up, regardless of the issue. You could be calling 911 because there's actually a situation transpiring that necessitates someone arriving with lethal force and ready to use it. That could be the case. You could also be calling 911 because you're trying to get assistance to a homeless person or a person experiencing homelessness. And it's like, of course, this is an emergency. Of course, I'm going to call 911. Maybe they're sick. Maybe there's some imminent need. In cases, that is just one example. But in cases like that, in cases of mental health, there are other responses that we believe could be useful. Outside of having someone show up who has a gun, you know, to call a spade a spade. It's an inequity that also that, you know, communities, every community should be able to rely on 911. But depending on the community you're from, you will not always get the support that you need and you might not always get the response that you need. And so our work in reimagining 911, as we like to say, is in seeing, well, what possibilities are there for change? What are the levers of change and how do we apply technology and people power in order to make those changes possible? Main partner is the Transform 911 group at the University of Chicago. They've been pioneering this work for a while now. They're a group made up of researchers, advocates, people who have been in the 911 ecosystem and worked in the field for decades. They come with such a, an incredible brain trust of knowledge about the 911 system, both the gaps in it and what potential solutions could be. They came out with a really rigorous and smart list of recommendations for ecosystem level change this past March, so last month. The plan is for a final draft of those recommendations to be published in June and for that to go out to the ecosystem in hopes that individual 911 jurisdictions could adopt these recommendations and hopefully make some progressive change. And so, you know, in terms of the national action team and our goals, We have an extremely talented, wonderful community of volunteers. Chizo, (laughs) thank you so much for everything that you do. We have a a really talented group of volunteers who are helping out every day, every week, applying their skill sets, their time, and their energy to helping understand what is the problem space and what can we do about it. The problem space that we've identified as our, our area of focus is How can we eliminate barriers in terms of data systems and access to data and the use of data in order to improve how 911 jurisdictions collaborate, in order to improve their ability to even make meaning of their own data and how they organize it, how whether or not they track it, whether or not they they have access to that. And so, you know, in our current work, we've just sourced open data sets for around 160 priority cities. So we've identified whether or not they even have data that's publicly accessible. And we're in the second phase of this work where we're describing, well, what's actually in the data set? Is it open source? Is it publicly licensed? What kind of call types are indicated in there? These are really important things to know because there are some jurisdictions that don't have any open data. There are some that seemingly don't track what kinds of calls are coming in. And when you don't know what kind of calls are coming in, how do you know what are the needs of your end user, which is the people who are calling in (laughs) every day trying to get help? And so... We think that by improving access to data, by eliminating barriers there, providing analysis of what the problems of the data sort of space is within 911, 
we can enable jurisdictions to make change for themselves and improve the way that they leverage data to enhance their delivery of service to the people that depend on them. I can echo the experience of trying to actually dig through different cities data portals and like, whoa, everyone uses a very different version of Socrata <laughs> or at least no Socrata at all, which is fine. But they have their own method of doing things. And like, what does it mean to actually capture information that you can then like make recommendations around? I think is really interesting. It amazes me how many people, even in our data working group who, you know, yeah, carve out hours a week or an hour a week, you know, to make, you know, any type of contribution to the work that's going on. So I would say really quick, I want to get your rundown of a few things. So first, how can folks get involved in this work? I know I personally did join at the very beginning with the kickoff, but yeah, curious what the process is for someone to join now, what, you know, their expected time commitment might be, and yeah, any big wins that you can be able to talk about. Of course. Yeah. So in terms of how to join, this is something that I make it a point to tell to pretty much all new volunteers who join in a whole group setting. So I definitely mentioned this at info sessions. I definitely mentioned it, you know, and most opportunities I get, but our national action team itself and the processes and systems we use are really experimental and they're in a pilot mode right now. We've been developing our onboarding process for a little while. We just rolled out, you know, how to actually get involved as a volunteer if you want to. That is hosted on a Notion page that I would love to give you the link to, but it is not a straightforward link. So, <laughs> like, look, audience, get your pens and papers out. We're gonna, I'm gonna, you know. Well, we can definitely link it in the okay, show notes. That's awesome. So we use Notion to house, you know, all of our volunteer materials. In addition to a platform called Discourse. If you, you know, using the link that I'll provide to Chizo and Evan, if you use that link, though, you'll see directly in there the onboarding guide. There are literally, you know, four steps to being onboarded, submitting a NAP or National Action Team registration form, you know, maybe meeting with me so I can learn more about you and getting you matched to teams and getting you the tools that you need technology wise. So that's how you would get involved. Time commitment, whatever you can do. <laughs> <laughs> I would literally say that there is no upper or lower limit to participation here. There's an upper limit in the sense of like, I would want any volunteer to be taking care of themselves. And I want, <laughs> I want you to be able to dedicate the time that you want to to the cause at the same time that, you know, we're all people and you need to attend to things in your personal life, your professional life. And so balance is really important for sure. But, you know, like Hugo mentioned, if you have an hour a week, Great. That would probably help us with a few data sets. Like, you know, that so much of this is not about looking at things at the individual level. At the same time, it's so much about the individual level. Like, it's not about, like, it is about Evan's, like, one to two hours a week. If, he, if he's able to do that, Evan, you should join the team. But it's also, <laughs> this is my, I was planning to weave that in there so that I could. It's more about also his one to two hours a week combined with what everyone else is doing. And that is what impact is, you know? And so when you look at it in the aggregate, time commitment will take whatever anyone can give and it all adds up to a lot. Can you remind me, I'm sorry, of the last part of the question? I'm not sure if I touched on everything, but I think that was, that might've been everything. I would say, are there any big wins you want to celebrate that we can share? And maybe the last one being, 
who can join, right? Do you have to be part of a brigade? If folks don't know what a brigade is, what's a quick definition for folks for to sure. know about? So I'll start with, you know, I'll go start from the end and go in reverse. So pretty much anyone can join. I think that there are, now that said, there are probably considerations around a couple of things. One, you know, I think that we, we would need to think through, like, if minors could join. I don't, they're intuitively, I don't see why not. At the same time, you know, there might be sensitive content. And this is, goes for whether you're a minor, but it's like there could be triggering things that just inherently have to do with researching and understanding the 911 system. So there are considerations there. But on balance, the door is wide open for anyone. We will welcome you with open arms. And believe me, no matter what background, experience, skill sets you have, there is something that you can bring to the table. We will support you in connecting what you can do and what you want to do to the goals of the team. You don't have to be a member of Code for America Brigade or an individual volunteer chapter to participate. We have around 70 to 80 brigades across the country. And we're I'm really thankful for the brigades volunteers that we have because they're, you know, like down brigade volunteers, they're doing the work and they're helping spread the word about the needs here and the volunteer opportunity. But you don't need to be a part of a, of a brigade at all. And in terms of big wins, there are really a lot in the day to day. It's like there are seemingly small things like, wow, the learning and development working group on the team just came out with some new learning materials around 911. That's amazing. Like we have like some foundational infrastructure content for new volunteers to learn from you know, to big things like, wow, like the data team literally just went through 160 priority cities and told us whether or not they have, you know, there's an open source data set for all of those. Like that's a big win. And then really the national action team, it's remarkable that we've made something from nothing. Like we have this team of close to 70 people who are doing this work, who have partnered with Transform 911, who've created, you know, seven different working groups on this team are doing work every single day building infrastructure for the team and thinking about how to make change in the system. All this came together from literally nothing. Like, <laughs> we had nothing except for the energy and passion and convictions of people. And now we have a distributed team that's tackling a really, really big problem. So those are some big wins in broad strokes. But yeah, I couldn't be more grateful or proud of everything that we've done. Thanks for the very light, very public encouragement you've given me to <laughs> join this project no problem, boy if i can ever get my head out of the sand where i'm working i would gladly join it may take a few weeks but i'll give it a look just as a wrap a big picture career advice sort of session for you here we wanted to start by asking as someone who's had to make a big career pivot and has been empowered in his career changes by exploring progressive ideas and while building a community of like-minded people. We wanted to ask you, looking back at your perhaps undergraduate self, just put yourself in that mindset. Did you think that you had it all figured out? <laughs> or you're gonna be a teacher you're gonna be a teacher working on educational policy on the side, or is it like, oh boy, I don't know what the heck's going on here? <laughs> You know, I think this applies to like 99% of people. No one knows anything about anything. Like at that age, you know, like you, no one knows. You think you know, but you probably don't. So what you think is going to happen, what you think you're going to be passionate about, what you want to dedicate your energies to, you might have a really concrete idea of that in mind. Chances are 9 out of 10, that's going to change in some way, in some way that's not insignificant. I would say to anyone who's considering like a career change, whether it's transitioning into civic tech or not, or just generally 
making a career pivot, it's literally never too late. I think that the biggest barrier to taking the leap is it's really internal. You know, it's about a lot of things. Like, I'm not going to lie and say that, you know, anyone can just drop their job tomorrow and just go out and do something new. Some people have really specific obligations where, you know, they can't afford to take risks at that scale, at least not in the current moment. But if you are fortunate enough to do that, and even if you're not, if you're holding on to an idea of something that you would like to pivot to, I don't think it's ever too late. I think it's about, you know, not to sound trite, but it is about following your passions. And I hope thinking about, it's about seeing where you can do good in a world that is deeply imperfect, but remembering that there are near perfect things about the contributions that you and everyday people can make when, I don't know, you have other people at heart and, you know, you're invested in pursuing what's good for the world. So I would say definitely consider career changes if you're not doing that. (laughs) But yeah, I would never close the door on anything. I would never recommend that to anyone. Keep the doors open to change and possibility. You know, I think you just hit on a key point of being in a mo- this era of the modern age and being like, that's still like to hit on one of my least favorite interview questions. Where do you see yourself in three to five years? Do you think you'll still be working with this company? It's like, answers like, I don't know. Like, but especially when I was going through the job process of like, okay, like during pandemic, I'm like, okay, well, I wasn't expecting to be sitting at home staring at a laptop for eight hours a day. So, like, how could I say I'm going to be here and have this concrete idea of where I'm going to be in that span of time? Like, I know it's sort of a gauge of, like, yep. something. I don't even know. I just never cared to learn to find out, which probably makes means I, this is probably why I'm here, where I'm at right now. But, like, <laughs> you have to get over these concrete ideas. Like, you have to be fluid. You have to be open to, like you said, you have to be open to potentially transitioning any open doors you can see that look attractive take them. But I didn't want to... It kind of hit on it, but just want to ask you more concretely. What sort of advice do you have for people wanting to pursue work that they find meaningful and impactful? That's a great question. Part of how I would answer this intuitively, and I think I'm speaking to people who have been in situations like ones that I found myself in, where it's, I said a little bit about my upbringing and the background that I come from. And I think that especially for people who are coming from situations of both obligation you know, to themselves and to their family and might have more than typical levels of responsibility for a longer amount of time in their lives to other people who don't have the same kind of mobility that we're lucky enough to have. You don't always have the luxury of just transitioning to something without thinking about other people, you know? And so part of what I want to say is, you know, it's not wrong to think about what you need. And I mean that on a couple different levels. It's like what you need in terms of your passions and your convictions and what you want to do, but also if you need to meet your obligations, then that's okay. And like, if that means like, cause let's be real, we live in a world where unfortunately, like if you pursue social change work, nonprofit work, anything in that domain, you're probably gonna make a little bit less than if you go into investment banking. <laughs> and like, you know, if, if you are someone who, because of your obligations, you're not able to dedicate your full self to the causes that you might really believe in, it's okay to take care of yourself and your obligations and what you need to take care of to enable better work and a better version of yourself later when you're able to, you know, to do things that you really, really care about. You know, it's part of why, like, you know, my dad wasn't invested in being a pizza delivery driver his whole life, but <laughs> that wasn't his passion, but he did it because he needed to, you know, and that's okay. 
you know, so do what you need to do. I echo and plus one all of that. Definitely <laughs> in support of paying people a living, comfortable wage. Absolutely. So they can take care of themselves. Yep. And be better contributors to society at their own. Anyways, thank you so much, Billy, for talking with us this afternoon. I know it's storming in where you are right now. And so somehow Wi-Fi has granted us the go-ahead to make this interview happen. So really, again, glad that we were able to chat with you. I learned so much. Evan, I can imagine you also feel the same. Absolutely. Probably most engaging conversation I've had in a while. So appreciate that. Billy, again, it's always a great day in Wisconsin when two great people from Wisconsin <laughs> can meet up and discuss stuff like this. Absolutely. So, thank you Ouch. very much. Just cut cheese out of that one. <laughs> Just pretend I'm not here. Or maybe I could be an honorary Wisconsin. Say, you, you, yes. Just consume like some string cheese or deep fried bacon or deep fried butter in like the next. Yeah, we sold that state fair at some point. In the next hour, you're good. I will get on my training (laughs) regimen. But yeah, thank you so much. Thank you both for having me. This was wonderful. And I want to say one more thing and give it on this note. One of the best things about teaching and about organizing is that you get to participate in conversations with people who that remind you of why you do everything that you do every day. And, you know, so thank you for helping me with another reminder. I really appreciate it. Thank you again for taking the time to tune into this episode. We hope you found this conversation with Billy as interesting as we did. Do share this with any friends, family, coworkers, or neighbors interested in organizing or social justice, or really anyone who might be interested in exploring any of our past episodes. As always, please make sure you're following us on our new Twitter handle at ThinkCivicPod to join in on the conversation after this episode. Be sure to hit subscribe at thinkcivic.substack.com. Thank you and remember to think civic. <laughs>